This evening I'd like to talk about acceptance. And just in beginning the talk, I'd like to put to one side, if I can, some of our more conventional associations that acceptance has something to do with passivity or disengagement or resignation or hopelessness or any of that stuff. Um, In this practice, I think acceptance is something much more profound and vital than any of that. There's a poem by Kabir. It says, The blue sky stretches out farther and farther. The daily sense of failure goes away. The damage I have done to myself fades. A million suns come forth with light when I sit firmly in that world. In meditation practice, we are endlessly encouraged to be with life, to be with each moment just as it is to be present, wholeheartedly present, with all things just as they are, to discover what is real and what is true. We're encouraged to be at peace with what is, to discover what it means to really be in harmony with each moment, with the true nature of each moment. Let it be. Let it be. This is the unwavering, instruction of this practice as a way of finding both simplicity and peace in each moment. And all of this encouragement and all of this guidance can in truth be summed up in one word, which is acceptance. What does that mean? What does it look like? Acceptance I don't feel it is born of gaining. It's not born of achieving. It's not born of heroic and strenuous effort. In the search for acceptance and peace, it's probably more true to say that in every day and in every moment, rather than something being gained, something is let go of. Acceptance is not about pretending. It's not about pretending something is happening or something isn't happening. Acceptance is not an idealized state that's somehow going to be gifted to us after a lifetime of struggle. It is a practice of both wisdom and compassion, and it's a moment-to-moment practice. Acceptance really is learning what it means to be at peace with all things and all moments that that come to us. It's about coming to know an enduring place of peace within ourselves. Acceptance is about learning to, to know how to rest in a loving and compassionate heart and mind that liberates us from anxiety and struggle. And that quality of acceptance, of course, also liberates the world. It liberates other people. 
in our lives to be who they are, to be what the world is. And it is that liberation from struggle, from anxiety, from expectation that is what enables change and enables transformation both inwardly and outwardly. I think to learn about acceptance or or to practice acceptance is really to take a journey in each moment and in each of our encounters, both with the world and with ourselves. And it's a journey from delusion and illusion to reality. It's a journey from all the stories and the ideas that we have about ourselves and other people in the world, a journey to the simple truths of each moment. It's also a journey from anxiety and struggle to serenity and to balance and compassion. And each time we make that journey, I would say that there is a price to pay. Because in making that journey, we are asked to lay down you know, some of the burdens of our fears and our shoulds and our expectations. Sometimes in making that journey, we're, we're asked to release some of our historical resentments and resistances and images and aversions. And that seems like a huge thing to do. It seems like, you know, it could be a really high price to pay, a huge demand. But actually, it's, it, it may be, but it's not nearly so costly or demanding as holding on to all of those things. <coughs> it's worth taking a moment to reflect on how our lives would be how we would be if we didn't carry with us any burden, any accumulation of images, of anxiety, of fears, if we didn't carry with us in our lives any accumulation of struggles and resistances, what our lives would look like if we could live in a way in which the past was not endlessly being superimposed on the present. I mean, does it look like suffering? Will it look like misery or conflict? Or does it look like freedom? The simple truths of each moment are not always easy to open to, to accept. There are really terrible, terrible things that happen in our world really tragic things that can happen in our relationships with others really difficult, very difficult things that can happen in ourselves. It's not always easy to open to or to accept some of the changes that we go through in our lives, some of the losses we face, some of the unpleasant encounters. It's not always easy to open to you know, many of the difficult feelings and thoughts that we encounter. It's not always easy to accept that we don't get what we want. It's not always easy to accept the changes that are happening in our bodies. It's 
not always easy to open to the reality that other people in the world don't feel particularly obliged to be obedient to our expectations or wishes. It's not easy to accept and embrace many of these realities, but I think we really are harmed far less by the truths of each moment than by the holding and the cherishing and the clinging to all of the notions that we can carry about how this world should be, how we should be, how other people should be. What is it that we're asked to accept in the quest for freedom and peace? Certainly the changing circumstances of our lives and the fact that life doesn't always work out the way that we hope it to. Sometimes we're disappointed and disillusioned. We're asked to open to the reality that we can't force events and circumstances to mold themselves to how we want, to our expectations, to all of our ideas. We're asked to open to the unpredictability of living, that we live a life without guarantees and that this is a reality we all share. We're asked to accept the truth of all of the people in our lives, the shadows of those from our past who may have harmed us. We're asked to accept those people in our present that we may struggle with. We're also asked to accept those people we love who may not be perfect. And we are asked to accept ourselves, to embrace the simple truth of ourselves. And this really does mean finding the space within ourselves that can embrace the past, all the things we've done, and have left undone, the things that we feel regret and guilt over. In accepting ourselves, we we need to find the space to embrace the ways that we may have been wounded or hurt by others. Accepting ourselves also means accepting our present. And all of those places in ourselves that somehow we find ourselves denying or ignoring or rejecting the demons of our obsessions and stickiness. Learning how to accept ourselves in this moment without reservation, without condition, is truly a training ground of peace and freedom And it's a training ground for every area of our lives. You know, we see so easily that without that space to embrace what is, our habits of rejection and judgment and condemnation we inflict upon ourselves, and of course they spill over into every encounter and relationship in our lives. And yet when we can find the space, just to be with the simple truths of each moment, we also do make peace with all things. We find that when we're resisting, when we're we're pushing away the past, 
how much it shadows us and how much the past becomes our present and our future. When we do find that we're able to find the space to let things be, we actually break up that continuity between past and present and future. Now, there's wonderful lines by McField. So he says, out beyond the ideas of right and wrong, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the heart lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other make no sense. Self-acceptance is a powerful gift. It's a powerful gift to learn how to be with the simple truths of each moment. And it's surely one of the greatest challenges of our lives to know and to discover how to do that. And it's also, I think, very clear that this, this art of acceptance, this art of embracing, is not a journey we're always that well trained in. You know, I think most, we are actually born into a culture where I feel like non-acceptance is more the norm than acceptance. And we do internalize many of our cultural inclinations. And if we think about what are the standards, what are the values of a culture of non-acceptance? It's often about striving. It's often about becoming, that we need to strive, that somehow we need to make really heroic efforts in order to become acceptable, in order to become lovable, in order to become perfect. Sometimes the values are that we somehow must earn or win acceptance by virtue of the efforts that we make to fit in with the models and standards of perfection. I think this is a really powerful mythology in our culture. Now, none of us, I mean, certainly I have never met a perfect person. You know, maybe some of you have, but I personally have never met. I don't even know what that means, a perfect person. Someone who's perfectly lovable, perfectly acceptable, perfectly worthy. And yet somehow I feel like in the background of our consciousness, we have this ideal that this state actually exists. And it can be a collective, almost a collective illusion, a collective dream that we're somehow almost banned from questioning. And instead, sometimes we internalize our own kind of model of what that perfect person looks like, what we would look like as a perfect person. And so collectively, you know, we can unhappily strive together to discover this perfect person. Think of the relentless messages, I think, in our world, you know, about having the perfect body, having the perfect mind, having the perfect relationship, having the perfect children, being the perfect parent, having the perfect lifestyle, having the perfect meditation center, you know, having the perfect retreat. You know, these kind of relentless messages that are delivered to us. And I think they deliver a kind of twisted thinking where we start to believe maybe that freedom is dependent upon becoming perfect. 
You know, and what are the, if we think about what are the companions to those models of, of perfection? How, how do we find ourselves responding to those messages? You know, what kind of inner, cult- inner culture do we create when we carry with us models of perfection? One of our responses, I think, to those models or that inner culture of perfection is anxiety. The anxiety and the fear of... Anxiety is actually the nature of non-acceptance. You know, it's the nature of non-acceptance. The anxiety about not being good enough, not being beautiful enough, not fitting in. The anxiety or the fear somehow of being found out to be lacking. The anxiety about being criticized, being rejected, being condemned. You know, I think one of the very clear consequences of a lack of self-acceptance is a surrender of authority. We delegate, in in a lack of self-acceptance, we delegate authority to others, to these, these mythical others who seem to possess the valid standards by which we, me- by which we measure ourselves. I think it, we see in relationship with other people, there's often this very curious, this very paradoxical relationship about approval and about acceptance. That sometimes, you know, we find ourselves craving for and yearning for approval and affirmation. And yet, even when we get it, we somehow mistrust it. You know, they didn't really mean it. We think, oh, you know, they're just not seeing all of my frailties or my imperfections. We don't actually really trust it. You know, it's interesting that in the Buddhist tradition, one of the characteristics, one of the first characteristics of awakening or enlightenment is an unshakable confidence. It's a movement out of that place of doubt, that place of surrendering authority. We often see that when we're anxious, what we, we want to control. We want to control other people when we're anxious. You know, we want to control ourselves. We want to control our world as a way of protecting ourselves. You know, sometimes when we're anxious, we want to control our our behavior. We don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to make ourselves vulnerable to criticism or or to judgment. And you can always see that control is a tension, isn't it? Whenever we're trying to control anything, there's a kind of tension there. And and part of that tension is, is this background voice that is somehow always measuring, always evaluating good, bad, right, wrong, better, worse. The vocabulary is huge of control. It's very difficult to really let anything be in that tension. And in fact, what we see that our own intrinsic capacity for kindness and compassion is somehow submerged in the fearful mind that our capacity even for trust and intimacy is submerged in the fearful mind. When we're anxious and trying to control, it's very easy then to live in this world of what if? What if I'm disapproved of? You know, we can get terrified by that. You know, what if I'm a terrible meditator and everybody knows it? 
What if somehow I fail and everybody knows it? What, what happens if I'm hurt? You can sense the fear growing. And we can also sense the, the kind of disconnection in that. You notice when we're very fearful, when we're very controlling, how very powerful and predominant the sense of me is, the sense of self is, I, I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to make mistakes. What do others think of me? It's a very disconnected way of being. You know, in, in Zen, there's this, this wonderful statement that says, for others to approve of me is easy. For me to approve of myself is very hard. It's not. I, I don't think it's that hard in this world to win approval. And it's, it's really not that hard. I mean, you know, if you're kind of nice and you fit in, you don't disagree with people, you know, you be who others want you to be, you kind of mold yourself to people's expectations, you get approval. You know, you get affirmation. Sometimes you get affection. I don't think it's that hard to find approval in this world. But that's not the same as acceptance. I think approval kind of makes, makes me think of an empty refrigerator. You know, like you're really hungry and, and you kind of find yourself drawn towards the refrigerator thinking there's going to be this wonderful meal in there and you get there and it's empty. You know, that's, I think, is kind of what it's like to, to live chasing approval. It's like, it's like shadowing an empty refrigerator through our lives. You know, it's somehow no matter how much we get, even how much approval we get, it's never really the enough, and it never really is very convincing, and it never seems to have the power to heal that underlying anxiety, those very deep feelings, fears about being abandoned or being alone or being isolated. To approve of ourselves, actually, that's much harder. That's much harder. Because we need to find a different vocabulary, don't we? We need to find a different vocabulary than right, wrong, good, bad, success, failure. We need to find a vocabulary of compassion and wisdom. And that's something we don't necessarily or or can't depend on getting from others. It's a vocabulary in any case that we need to find within ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that even in seeking for that vocabulary of compassion and wisdom, that those old voices aren't going to make their appearance. They will. You know, you can hear that chattering voice in the back, good, bad, right, wrong. I think of it kind of like the turkey voice, you know. (laughs) It's like like the turkey voice. I love the turkeys here. I think the turkeys here are a wonderful metaphor for so many, many things, you know. And it's kind of like that voice, you know, good, bad, right, wrong. Well, so we can just let it be, can't we? It's a habit. It's a habit. You know, when you see those turkeys, you know, you go walk by them on the road and they kind of start strutting their stuff, you know, as if they're in danger, but they're not in danger. You know, it's just a habit. It's just a habit. You come near them and they strut their stuff, you know. Well, it's kind of, it's like this empty strutting, isn't it? And that's how we can sort of learn to treat those voices, you know. It's just strutting their stuff, you know, they're just ruffling their feathers. But we don't need to take it too seriously. 
You know, we don't need to believe in it. We can learn to dive a little bit deeper. You know, there's this wonderful line I heard lately that says, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are really excellent. <laughs> it's great, isn't it? Parts of me are really excellent. That's such a different dimension of being than saying, I have to be perfect. Parts of me are really excellent. You know, I took that step in a really excellent way. You know? I, I breathed that breath in a really excellent way. You know? Today I ate my supper in a really excellent way. I may not be perfect, but parts of me are really excellent. You think how much we really need to find in our lives this, this vocabulary of wisdom and compassion. You know, what is our world when we sit here, when we walk here, when we move through this world? Well, on one level, of course, the world that we all share is this world of sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings and bodies, you know, and all the things that they do. That's the world that we all share. And there's another world, and that's our response to all of that how we hold all of that. And that's the kind of like that extra layer that is somewhat unique to us and yet also not unique to us. And we see that how we respond to this world of sights and sounds and feelings and thoughts, that our response is actually what creates the kind of world that we find ourselves inhabiting. And really, a, a really good question is, do we always need to be defined by the contents of our mind? You know, a thought appears, it's sad, it's angry, it's happy, it's unhappy, it's fearful, it's anxious, it's controlling, it's reactive, it's greedy, it's lustful. This is just coming and going, isn't it? I mean, do we always need to be defined by the contents of our mind? Because it's such a fragile, such an insecure, such an anxious way of living when we are, when we do define ourselves by the contents of our mind. And that's what leads to this kind of controlling element only because we define ourselves by the contents of our mind, then we feel we have to control it, to control what appears, to control what happens. And it's also futile, isn't it? Because we don't control it. I mean, did you sit down this morning and think, oh yeah, today I'm going to have, you know, uh, 32,000 greedy thoughts? <laughs> no, of course not. We never actually invited that. You we so easily do define ourselves by the contents of our mind. I mean, imagine this scenario that you go in at lunchtime, you know, very mindfully, very intentionally to eat your lunch, very mindfully you serve yourself. You're juggling a lot of things. You know, you've got your plate, you've got your silverware, you've got your salad bowl. This is an anxious moment. <laughs> in now, suppose it happens that in that moment, unfortunately, 
you drop your solid on the shoes of the person in front of you. <laughs> now, what, how would you hold that? Can you imagine yourself in that position? How would you hold that? Would you be able to say, just drop the salad? <laughs> or would it be this kind of storm of emotion and thought? You know, everybody saw that. I made a fool of myself. I'm so embarrassed. You know, I'm, such, I'm so unmindful. You know, no one is going to want to be next to me in the line anymore. You know, it's the whole thing just kind of storms in. What do they think about me? I mean, is it really the end of civilization as you know it? <laughs> or is it just a drop salad in the dining room? You know, how much can we calm down to those simple truths? I mean, which do you think is more peaceful? You know, the just the drop salad in the dining room? Or that great construction? We try to control what kind of feelings we have, what kind of sensations we have, what kind of thoughts and images arise, because sometimes we fear we're going to be overwhelmed if we don't control them. We're going to get lost. And yet that, that trying to control, what it actually does is that it invests greater and greater authority into the very things that we fear. It invests greater and greater authority into the very things that we resist. So we learn a different way. We learn a different way of being. We learn to take our seat in a deeper wisdom, to learn to listen, to learn to simplify, to learn to strip away the stories, to learn to let things be, to learn to embrace with a compassionate heart and mind, what comes to us. It's a poem by Wendell Berry. It says, I go among the trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. Then when I am afraid of comes, I love for a while in the sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings, and I hear its song. We learn that we can accept. We don't always have to be perfect, to fix, to modify, to make things different. That we learn that letting go of control doesn't mean that we're out of control. We learn a spacious kindness and compassion in which everything can be released. Another mechanism of non-acceptance is resistance, aversion, distance. The song of non-acceptance is judgment. When we listen to our hearts and minds in a single day, in a single hour, sometimes it's amazing to discover how many times we sing the song of judgment. What a lot we have to say about other people, about how they act, how they dress, how they appear. What a lot we have to say about the world, that it's beautiful, that it's ugly, that it's right, that it's wrong. 
and what a lot we have to say about ourselves. It seems that this kind of inner critic is very rarely tempted to take a break. And what it does is it undermines faith. It undermines vision. It undermines energy. You know, Jung once said that the most terrifying thing would be to accept oneself. Why? Because to accept ourselves completely actually would mean a very radical transformation in many of the rules, many of the guidelines, many of the signposts that have actually informed our lives. We would have to forsake perfection for freedom, and they are actually very different. Instead of asking ourselves, what does it take for me to be perfect? We would have to ask ourselves, what would I need to let go of in order to be free? Uh, both wisdom and compassion really do teach us the futility of judgment. I mean, our whole life experience surely teaches us the futility of judgment, this kind of passive terrorism. The judgment alters and changes nothing. We can shout at ourselves, we can shout at the world, we can shout at other people the whole day long, our whole lives long, and nothing will change as a result of that shouting. We can be sure of that. We can actually be quite confident of that. We can scold, we can blame, we can condemn about how I should be, how you should be, how the world should be. I should be more generous. I should be more giving. I should be less dull. I should be more still. This is like a mantra, isn't it? I should be a better meditator. I should be more kind. We could shoot ourselves almost to death. And it transforms nothing. It absolutely transforms nothing. That's so interesting that we can put so much energy into something that produces nothing. <laughs> that is incredible. You know, far better to put our energy perhaps somewhere that might be somewhat fruitful. You know, this is a better lesson to learn. Oh, the only result of shooting ourselves is more control, more vandalism of our consciousness, more distance, more fear, and exhaustion. And this is not just a good idea. I mean, if you reflect upon your own experience, you know, have you ever, ever come out of a really decent bout of self-criticism and self-judgment and come out of it feeling more enlightened and more free? <laughs> mm -hmm. No, it's not, it's not reality. We just come out of it feeling so tired, so exhausted, so drained, so depleted. And the judgments, of course, are essentially thoughts. They're not more than thoughts. They are just thoughts. Turkeys ruffling feathers. It's <laughs> all that they are. But they're made more powerful by the kind of charge and investment that we give to those judgments through our beliefs in perfection and becoming. Why would it be more terrifying to accept ourselves completely? Because I think the search for perfection really does give us a lot to do in our lives. It's a project without end. A lot of tasks to complete, a lot of work to finish, a lot of ways to occupy ourselves 
a lot of striving to get things, a lot of striving to get rid of things. And all of this provides a fuel, doesn't it, for me, for an image, for a persona, for an appearance to make in the world. And the rewards of that sometimes look pretty enticing. You know, praise and affirmation and applause, belonging, to be someone special, to be someone admirable. I think it's, it's, it's so important that we see that freedom is really a very different journey. And set against some of this kind of inner mythology of perfection and becoming, that sense of, or that, that possibility of freedom can actually fill us with a kind of existential anxiety. Like, who would we be if we weren't striving? Who would we be if we weren't becoming? Who would we be if we weren't focused upon always becoming more perfect? You know, what would we do without all the things to work on and work out and do? I think sometimes the existential anxiety is we almost kind of envision ourselves sinking into a swamp of dullness and passivity, being overwhelmed, being deprived of creativity and direction, quite ignoring, of course, the reality that the freest people we've ever encountered in our lives have been the most creative and the most vital and the most alive. We somehow managed to admit that reality. Instead, we have this vision of us being a bag lady, you know, nothing in the world. You know, and I think there's this incredible kind of leap we can make in our consciousness where that's actually not a bad vision to, dwell, to, to rest in for a while. You know, not literally, and of course not to under, underestimate what that, how painful that could be. But what would it mean to be nothing? What would it mean to, to not hold on to anything at all to be someone? What would it mean not to have anything, any idea of having to work on anything or work anything out? What would it mean really to let things be? We sense that sometimes. We can sense actually that you know, perhaps that might actually be really a profound stillness of being, a profound freedom of being where we're defined and limited by nothing and can embrace everything. I think sometimes we get the glimpse of that and then the doubt comes. We say, oh, I can't be free because I have this long list of imperfections, because I have this history, because I have these failures, because I have these obstacles, because I have these shortcomings, because I'm not good enough, because I'm not not worthy enough. And after, maybe after I've modified and fixed and altered all of these, then I can be free. You know, recently, in the last few weeks, I've I've spent a lot of hours um, visiting a friend in a psychiatric unit in England, and and this woman was sectioned, uh, which means being confined under the Mental Health Act. And... um, you know, this was a really nice unit. I mean, like it had really nice artwork on the walls and, uh, you know, really nice furniture and a really nice garden. And yet, no matter how nice it was, you know, and all of the patients there were encouraged to create more artwork for the walls and decorate their rooms and all of this stuff, and yet, no matter how much people did that, the door was still locked. 
And sometimes I think we can do that inwardly. You know, we make it, we want to make it look better and the door's still locked. And we can learn to unlock the door, you know, which is actually a far, far more worthy effort than just redecorating a room with a locked door. To be mindful, to discover the freedom of, freedom of acceptance, we are really invited to look again at those places in ourselves and in our lives and the people where we, where we, who we relate to, where we feel the most resistance and the most judgment, where we feel the most fierce aversion, where we feel the least acceptance, and in re-looking at those places, actually, we find the places where we feel the least free, where we feel the most imprisoned. To be acutely aware, to be really willing to turn directly towards those places, outwardly or inwardly, that we most fiercely reject, is the fastest way to find transformation. It's the fastest way to find acceptance and freedom in ourselves and in our lives. We need to be willing to look again at those places of habit and addiction and obsession, of those very closed rooms in our hearts and minds, and ask ourselves, do they truly deserve condemnation or judgment? Or is what they deserve a much more compassionate, allowing, freer way of being? We can turn towards the people in the past and in the present that we struggle with, the historical resentments, the wounds that we carry, can we find the space to hold them without fear, without demands? Sometimes when we turn towards those places outwardly or inwardly where we reject most strongly, what we see is an image, a frozen, solidified image that says that's who you are and that's who I am. And we see that every time we visit that image, we visit it with old eyes. With old eyes that don't allow anything to be seen anew, that don't allow anything to change. And what we really do in this practice is learn to cultivate new eyes. That we do turn towards those images, those stuck and frozen and solidified places, and see them anew. We learn to be present and to touch them with a sensitive attentiveness. And the oldness can soften the images can start to loosen and we can start to see anew. We take our seat in mindful listening, in openness, in interest, and we discover that we can release so many of the fears, so many of the anxieties without ever being overwhelmed and we glimpse the possibilities of real change and real transformation. I think one of the greatest gifts that I've ever encountered in this teaching is the gift of faith. The gift of faith. You know, the Buddha once said, if I did not have total faith that it was possible for you to do this, I would not ask it of you. Because I have total faith 
that freedom is possible for you, I ask it of you. When the Buddha said that, he actually didn't make any exceptions. He didn't say, oh, you know, I believe that freedom is possible for you except if you're from Idaho or except if you don't have the right body or except if, you know, for those who have a very difficult personal history or, you know, or, you know, because you, you, you've got the wrong spiritual portfolio. It was very inclusive. I have the faith that it is possible for you to be free. I think sometimes in our own practice, it's very important for us to learn how to reclaim that sense of faith and vision. Not to be too deceived by those moments. You know, when we do get hooked by the images, the fears, the, the kind of self-doubts, the, the, the condemnations and the judgments. You know, when I, when I meet with people and they... they they recount sometimes a, the terrible way that they see themselves, you know, of being a failure, of being worthless, of, of being anxious, of being angry. You know what I, I think in those moments? That's, that's just a Buddha with amnesia. It's a Buddha with amnesia. They just forgot. They just forgot who they are. And I think sometimes part of this practice is actually remembering who we are. Remembering we can be a Buddha with amnesia. And we can be a Buddha without amnesia. To be with what is, to be with the simple truths of each moment, the difficult and the easy, the fearful and the reassuring, the unpleasant and the pleasant, the the universe of sounds and sights and touches, the people that we love and the people that we struggle with, none of this is actually an obstacle to freedom at all. To learn to be with the simple truths of each moment is to withdraw blame, to release ourselves from judgment, from condemnation, from image, to sit still to embrace the arisings and the passings. And much to our surprise, in doing that, we don't sink. We are not out of control. We are not overwhelmed. We find peace. Not in the absence of the difficult, but in the absence of judgment. And the mind without judgment is very close to realization. To end with something, the Dogen. This is gaining enlightenment is like the moon reflected on the water. The moon doesn't get wet. The water isn't broken. Although its light is broad and great, the moon is reflected even even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the whole sky are reflected in one dewdrop on the grass. Enlightenment doesn't destroy the person. Just as the moon doesn't break the water, the person doesn't hinder enlightenment. Just as a dewdrop doesn't hinder the moon in the sky, the depth of the dewdrop is the height of the moon. The time of the reflection, long or short, proves the vastness of the dewdrop and the vastness of the moon in the sky.
we could take just a couple of moments quietly. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.